Hey folks, coming in hot with a little ad uh, for myself in my upcoming book. If you like this podcast, you are definitely going to like the book I wrote based on it. Unruly Figures, 20 Tales of Rebels, Rule Breakers, and Revolutionaries covers several people that I've never covered on the podcast. From queens of piracy in the Mediterranean to rebellious artists in New York to aboriginal resistance leaders in Tasmania, this book is full of rebellious folks you may have never heard of. It comes out wherever books are sold on March 5th. Pre-order it now. Link is in the show notes. Hey everyone, welcome to Unruly Figures, the podcast that celebrates history's greatest rule breakers. I'm your host, Valerie Clark, and today I'm going to be doing something a tiny bit different. Instead of covering a single person, I'll be covering a group that operated anonymously in Chicago in the mid-20th century, the Jane Collective, sometimes referred to just as Jane. In Chicago in the 1960s, if someone was walking around, say, a college campus or maybe the subway, one might have noticed signs that said, quote, pregnant, don't want to be, call Jane, with a phone number underneath. Most people probably didn't notice the signs, or if they did, they probably ignored them, even forgetting them as soon as they were out of sight. But for some women, this first exposure to Jane became a lifeline. Real quick, before we get into their story, for a full transcript of today's episode, head over to unrulyfigures.substack.com. That's U-N-R-U-L-Y-F-I-G-U-R-E-S dot S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. You can also get ad-free episodes, a bibliography of my research, photos of everyone I'm covering, discussion threads, and so much more. So check it out. All right, let's hop back in time. Right here at the top, I want to do some warnings. We're going to talk about abortion, sexual assault, and I'm going to briefly describe how abortion actually works. If you're not in a place mentally or emotionally where you want to hear about those things, now would be a good time to turn this off and come back later. All right, let's talk about abortion in the U.S., folks. As you've probably guessed, this episode was inspired by the recent news about the potential rollback of Roe v. Wade, but the Jane Collective has been on my list since day one. I've bumped it up because floating around right now in social media ether is just so much like patently wrong information about the way women's bodies work, about the history of abortion. I mean, about really basic biological and medical realities. And I just thought now would be a good time. In fact, I'm going to start with some quick definitions so we're all on the same page. The first, embryo, is used to describe the earliest stage of pregnancy from the moment a sperm fertilizes an egg up until about the eighth or tenth week of pregnancy. I'm going to come back to that time discrepancy, don't worry. An embryo becomes a fetus once it's made it past this 8-10 week mark. It's called a fetus until birth, that's when medically it is officially referred to as a newborn. Lots of people, including doctors, use the colloquial baby to refer to the growing cells in utero because it's a more comfortable term for people who think fetus sounds too sciencey. but technically fetus is the correct term and it's the term I'll be using this whole episode. Again, newborn is the term for a freshly birthed human. Viability means the point at which a fetus can survive outside the womb if it isn't able to be carried the full 40 weeks for whatever reason. This number varies, and I'll come back to part of why, but usually the earliest possible viability date given is 24 weeks, and only then with like super intensive like medical care that might not work. 30 weeks is a more comfortable marker of viability for lots of people. Okay, with that out of the way, let's go. As you may know, abortion was legalized in the U.S. in 1973 with the Supreme Court cases Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton. The rulings basically stated that women could get abortions in the U.S. without excessive government restriction, an obviously hazy wording. Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1982 is where we get that phrase, without undue burden, in reference to accessibility to clinics that can perform abortions. 
None of those Supreme Court rulings put a time limit on when in a pregnancy someone could have an abortion, choosing to leave that up to the states and, to a lesser extent, patients and their doctors. This is why we can have U.S. states like Texas banning any abortion after six weeks and states like Colorado putting no restrictions on when abortions can be performed. But obviously, abortion wasn't invented in the 20th century. In fact, it dates back to our earliest written records. Human history's oldest record of an induced abortion is from the Egyptian Ebers Papyrus, written in 1550 BCE. It recommended various herbal drinks to accomplish this, including an herb called Silphion, which was imported from Cyrene in North Africa. The plant was considered worth its weight in silver, and the herb was pretty quickly harvested to extinction. Abortion has also been debated almost that long. Some ancient scholars, like the Stoics, believe that the in utero fetus was essentially a plant until the moment of birth. It was breathing air that made it an animal or a human. Therefore, abortion was essentially the same as pulling weed. Aristotle believed that an abortion was morally acceptable if it was performed before the embryo experienced sensation and gained a human soul, which he placed at 40 days for male embryos and 90 days for female embryos, which... You know, it seems arbitrary, and also, how would you know? But okay, Aristotle. Some medical scholars suggest that Hippocrates and his Hippocratic Oath forbade abortions, but many scholars disagree with that. Soranus of Ephesus, a 2nd century Greek physician and author of the first medical book on gynecology, recorded two parties of medical practitioners. The first group refused to perform abortions, and the other group would only do so for the sake of the mother's health. Nevertheless, Soranus suggested that women who wanted to abort should go for energetic walks, carry heavy objects, ride animals, and jump up and down with the heels touching the glutes on each jump. For a long time, early-stage abortions were generally agreed upon as acceptable by most people, at least in Europe. St. Augustine wrote that the early-stage abortion was acceptable, though was against abortion of a fetus animatus, that is, a fetus with limbs in movement. Fetus animatus, this idea that a fetus has limbs in movement, is called the moment of quickening, which is kind of, is the moment when the fetus begins to move in utero, that's usually felt between the third and fifth month of pregnancy. Some people believe that once the fetus had begun moving of its own accord, it had a soul, and abortion then became murder. I want to pause here to point out a really big issue. You might have noticed that really long window when someone might first feel quickening, i.e. feel a fetus move. The third month to the fifth month is a big range when you're talking about a total pregnancy time of only 10 months. This is because a lot of times the exact date of conception can be hard to determine, so how long the fetus has been growing is also really hard to determine. This was especially true before advancements in medical science allowed us to peek inside a a womb, but it's still true today. In fact, a lot of pregnancies even today aren't calculated super accurately. Most doctors work from the date of your last known period, which might have been two or more weeks before you got pregnant. Even if you can say, I had a period on May 1, but only had sex once during the month of May on May 17th, the doctors will still use May 1 as the date to determine the amount of time you've been pregnant, effectively adding almost three full weeks to what we call gestational age. This is why earlier I was saying that an embryo becomes a fetus around 8 to 10 weeks. It's not because some just develop more slowly, it's because it's eight weeks after fertilization, but 10 weeks of gestational age because of the frustrating way that we calculate this. This unclear method of calculating gestational age leads to all kinds of problems including inaccurate due dates, concerns about slow development, lack of clarity around viability for premature births, and if you're trying to get abortion in a state like Texas, might make it that you can't. 
Because returning to our earlier example, if you got pregnant on May 17th, the doctor might be saying on June 15th that you're more than six weeks pregnant, even if that in practice isn't accurate because you got pregnant on May 17th. It would be remarkable if you were showing symptoms of pregnancy by June 15th, which again, in reality, is only four weeks later, but in terms of determining gestational age is somehow considered six weeks pregnant. Obviously, this is entirely the point in Texas. Lawmakers are trying to make it so that women can't get abortion by making it impossible to get one in time. And it all comes back to this idea of gestational age and calculating pregnancy from the last known period. Okay, so go back to that idea of quickening. The quickening benchmark was also tricky because historical women might not have known they were pregnant until that moment. The concept of a regular period, one that happens every 28 to 32 days, is somewhat modern. Anyone who has had a period knows that anything that impacts your hormones can throw your period off by a day or two, but historically, other factors came into play. If you didn't have enough to eat for a month because your stores were low but the harvest wasn't ready, your body might skip a period that month, because that's what the body does during times of starvation. Some sicknesses could impact your body cycles, some treatments for some sicknesses could impact your body cycles. It was really only the healthiest women who had a regular monthly period. And even then, your body might skip a period due to stress. Women might have gotten pregnant and had a miscarriage two months in, all without knowing because it wouldn't have been rare to skip a period. And other early symptoms like nausea could be explained by so many other things like unclean water and bad food and using opium to treat everything. So let's fast forward. Abortions were legal and widely practiced at least throughout Europe well into the 19th century. Despite centuries of philosophers debating abortion, like many issues, it was handled by the church and within the family or community. It wasn't always heavily legislated. Throughout time and across cultures, there were varying rules governing whether someone could get an abortion without telling the father or laws against forcing someone to have a miscarriage that they didn't want to have. But again, it wasn't a heavily regulated thing. I'm trying to be careful here because I can only do so much research and I'm sure someone is going to pull out like a 15th century law from somewhere proving that it was heavily legislated then. But basically, at least within the English-speaking world, abortion was largely legal until the 19th century. There are several factors here that contributed to the shift. One was a larger reliance on police forces and rule of law as opposed to the church. Society was undergoing a large shift towards secularization, and so things that were previously the domain of the family and the church became publicly legislated. Backlash against the women's rights movements was also part of this, men using passing laws about pregnancy and abortion as ways to exert control over women. Basically, if they were too busy raising kids, they couldn't be out protesting for the vote or prohibition, that sort of thing. Increasing knowledge of medicine also contributed though. In the US, physicians were actually the leading opposers to abortion, basically due to two strands of logic. The first was the argument that the moment of quickening wasn't any more or less important than any other stage of pregnancy. Basically, the idea that quickening was the moment the fetus got a soul went away, in favor of saying that if you were against abortion after quickening, then you should be against abortion before quickening because it was all part of the same process. This is where we get the idea that life begins at conception. The second, much more cynical, strand of logic is, um, well, physicians at the time were also trying to standardize the medical profession. Abortions and most births were still being practiced predominantly by midwives. This is the moment in US history when we start seeing male doctors present at births and the condemnation of quote-unquote untrained female midwives. Until then, throughout history, pregnancy and birth were the domain of women. It was almost universally unacceptable for men to be present and involved in an abortion or a birth. Basically, once they got someone pregnant, their job was done, they were out unless a baby was born. So again, male physicians, trying to standardize their careers and make it all about them, tried to use the law to drive midwives out of the room. 
It's worth noting at this point, while we're talking about the early medical profession, that the way we use the word abortion is not entirely correct. It's a medical term, encompassing any way that a pregnancy ends that is not birth, whether that's a live birth or a stillbirth. So miscarriages are sometimes referred to as spontaneous abortions in medical literature. And for the record, up to 40% of pregnancies end in miscarriage in the first few months. I want to note this because I think there's a disturbing trend that's gaining traction of criminalizing miscarriages and, pr and prosecuting people for having miscarriages in places with strict abortion laws. A miscarriage is when the embryo or fetus dies in utero of natural causes. Once you hit the 20-week gestational mark, this death is usually referred to as a stillbirth because the fetus will have to be removed through actual labor, which can be traumatizing. Again, this is a natural process and it happens a lot more than most people realize. What causes miscarriages and stillbirths isn't always well understood. In stillbirths, people can elect to have an autopsy to figure out the cause, but they're not always very successful. For people who don't trust women and who don't bother to learn about medical science, it's this lack of understanding around the cause of miscarriages that makes them suspect. I have a feeling that these people heard the term spontaneous abortion one time, didn't bother to look it up, and decided that it was the same as an induced abortion, which it's not. Unfortunately, this also isn't just lawmakers. There's a lot of blaming pregnant people for miscarriages from all sides, telling them that they did something wrong when that's not always settled science. I know that was a bit of a digression, but I just wanted to clarify the words spontaneous abortion and miscarriage and, and what those things mean. So the first anti-abortion laws appeared in the 1820s, possibly starting in Connecticut, where apothecaries who sold poisons to women for the purposes of abortion were kind of brought under the law first. Criminalization accelerated throughout the 19th century, and the federal Comstock law was passed in 1873, which criminalized the trade and circulation of obscene literature, which included information about contraceptives, abortion, prevention of sexually transmitted diseases, and sex toys. Obviously, the items themselves were also banned. This applied even to medical students, by the way, and it took almost a full century for us to strike everything in the Comstock law down. But despite this newfound criminality, abortions still happened in the United States, and that's what brings us, finally, to today's subject, Jane, or the Jane Collective. The collective was founded by Heather Booth, who in 1965 was a 19-year-old student at the University of Chicago. A friend of hers approached her with a problem. His sister was pregnant and didn't want to be and was considering suicide to avoid becoming a mother. He asked Booth if she knew anyone who could help her. Booth was probably a natural person to approach. She was already making herself known on campus for feminist activism, bringing together women to discuss the university's bias in favor of male students. She conducted studies on the difference of treatment between male and female students, organized a course on women's studies, and founded the Women's Radical Action Program to fight the ways women were pushed to the side in national groups like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which, if you recognize that name, it's because I mentioned it in the Rosa Parks episode. She used her activist network to call around to doctors, finally finding surgeon T.R.M. Howard, who agreed to perform the abortion in his facility. Word spread that Booth knew someone who could, perform, who could perform safe abortions, so another request came in, then another. She instructed people to leave messages for Jane on her dorm room answering machine, and she would call them back with the referral. In an interview in Harper's, Booth remembers, quote, I asked Dr. Howard for detailed descriptions of what was involved, how the procedure went. I had never had the experience myself. What I should do to advise women, advise the women in advance, what I should do as a follow-up, what signs I should look for if there was trouble that might develop. She used that knowledge to counsel the people who came to her and to check in with them after, something that few other abortion providers were doing. However, Dr. Howard charged $500 for an abortion, which is $4,589 today. I probably don't have to say this, but that's extremely expensive, and it was a huge barrier to access for many women. 
Eventually, Booth would switch to someone else, and they negotiated doing less expensive procedures, like two or three for the price of one. As a side note, there are conflicting reports about why they stopped working with Dr. Howard. In one interview, Booth mentioned that he had died, but in another, she mentioned that they lost touch with him. It doesn't entirely matter for the purposes of this story. Obviously, it mattered to Dr. Howard, but I just wanted to note that in case you go do your own research and find that conflicting information. From her statement in the Jewish Women's Archive, it sounds like Booth was fielding requests and making recommendations to doctors on her own for a couple of years. Here's a quote. Many of the women who called me were students. Some were housewives. At least a couple of women were related to the Chicago police. It made me believe that the police department knew about it and might even be referring people. The law did not change until 1973, and until then, abortion was illegal. I didn't want to go to jail. I was willing to take the risks because I thought I was fulfilling the golden rule. In 1966, I met my husband, a leader of the student movement, at a sit-in against the war, and we decided we'd get married when I graduated in 1967. Then I was trying to get a doctorate, working full-time, had a movement life full-time, and I was expecting a child. And the number of people calling upon Jane was increasing. I decided to recruit other women to take over the project and turn Jane over to the collective in 1968. It was through gathering with other feminist activists, mostly students and homemakers living in the Hyde Park area, that they finally formed the Jane Collective. Lots of people helped to make the work of the Jane Collective a reality by donating money or allowing them to use their homes, but only the members who actually counseled patients and were with them during abortions were known as Janes. You'll hear me refer to them as Janes and by the real names for the rest of the episode. At this point, abortion was still technically legal in Illinois for medical reasons, meaning that women could petition a doctor or hospital to get an abortion if the pregnancy endangered her life, but it was incredibly rare to actually get that ruling. So one of the first things the Jane Collective did was welcome women of all ages, races, and social classes without asking for any explanation about why they wanted an abortion. They continued using the same method Booth had established in her dorm room. A woman who needed an abortion would call a number that was picked up by an answering machine. They were instructed to leave their name, phone number, and the date of their last period. A member of the collective would call them back and counsel them through the decision. First, they only referred women to doctors they trusted. But quickly, instead of sending women to medical facilities, the Jane Collective wanted to provide a full-service support system. They changed tactics. People who decided to go through with the procedure were given the address to the front, an apartment that the collective rented throughout the city. This probably had several functions, one being sure that the callers were really who they said they were, but also so that they weren't giving out the abortionist's address. A member of the Jane Collective would meet the patient at the front, and often patients would show up with a family member, a boyfriend, or their kids that they already had. Once everything was confirmed, the Jane would drive them to a second location, called The Place, which was usually also an apartment for the actual abortion procedure. One of the members of the collective, known mostly only as Jenny, had been pregnant while going through cancer and had had an abortion by petition through a hospital. Reading over her statements, it seems like the process was incredibly traumatizing because it was all men making the decision, all men present for the actual procedure, and they were all really cruel to her. Remembering that, she began insisting on being in the room to ensure the women were treated well. Seeing that her presence was actually really helpful, the abortionist at the time, known to us only as Nick, trained her as his nurse. Eventually, there was always an assistant in the room. Jean Gallitzer-Levy, one of the Janes, described the assistant's role like this. The assistant would sit next to the woman and hold her hand if she wanted us to, which she often did. We talked to them. We would be at their head while the person who actually did the abortion finished up. Sometimes people would squeeze your hand so hard, you'd be amazed. 
You were there to talk to them and get them through it. It's not a particularly pleasant procedure, but it's not particularly long either. And it was, I know this sounds weird, but it was quite festive. The festive comment is, I think, really important. In another interview, Gallitzer Levy elaborated on this, saying that some of the people that would pass through the Jane Collective had been lied to and abused their whole lives. Quote, they had never really asserted themselves in any way, shape, or form, and this was their decision not to be in this position, not to have a baby, not to get stuck again. And they were really flying. They would be really excited, you know? We were real sunny and happy, so, you know, they allowed themselves to be. A lot of stories about abortion focus on desperation and financial problems and all these reasons that people feel trapped into getting an abortion. And with good reason, it makes it clear that having an abortion isn't just a thing people do for fun on the weekend. But I think this story is just as valuable. For some people, this was empowering. It was possibly the first time they felt like they had control over their future, over their lives. Saying, I cannot raise a child or I cannot raise another was maybe the first time they made a real decision. I'll tell you what comes next after a brief word from a sponsor. Today, I want to tell you all about empowering women as leaders. This Texas-based nonprofit provides scholarships and mentoring to women attending college at a non-traditional age. They've given over $300,000 in scholarships to over 120 women aged 23 to 64 to help them finish their degrees. NEWL has paired over 100 professionals with students for long-lasting mentoring relationships. I didn't know this until I heard of EWL, but women who have a mentor in college are actually 130% more likely to hold a leadership position in their workplace later in life. While financial aid is, of course, incredibly important, mentoring helps these students make a difference in the way they approach the rest of their lives. Right now, EWL is raising money for their next round of scholarships. Every little bit helps. So head over to EWLUSA.org to learn more about how you can support their students in Dallas, Fort Worth, and Austin. Again, that's that's EWLUSA.org. As I mentioned before the break, Nick's prices were still cost prohibitive, so the collective so the collective began fundraising to help cover the cost of the procedure for women who couldn't afford it. A lot of that happened through the Chicago Women's Liberation Union, who they were affiliated with. However, the real change for costs came when it was discovered that uh, Nick was not a licensed medical professional, as he had claimed. This caused a very huge crisis for the group. Many felt that an abortionist with fake credentials made them just as bad as the back alley abortionists who were killing people left and right with dangerous procedures. But the others felt that Nick had, by that point, been doing up to 20 abortions a day with good results, and he'd already trained Jenny to perform abortions. Why not just keep doing it themselves? According to Laura Kaplan, who is a member of the Jane Collective and later wrote the book The Story of Jane, the Legendary Underground Feminist Abortion Service, people said, quote, We've been using this guy for a year and a half. We only get the most fabulous feedback from OBGYNs who see the women for post-abortion exams. So clearly, you don't have to be a doctor to do this. At that meeting, one woman said, If he can do it and he's not a doctor, then we can do it too. End quote. The group split at this point, with several members leaving, but the ones that stayed did get training to do to perform abortions. 
because doing it themselves would have another benefit. They could lower the price to $100, though they accepted whatever a client was able to pay. The money went to covering the cost of apartments, supplies, etc. The Janes didn't keep it as income. This was convenient timing for them to be able to lower their prices, because New York had recently legalized abortion, so people with resources would rather travel there to licensed clinics where they were safely within the law than risk an illegal abortion in Illinois. Four women were trained to perform abortions using primarily the dilation and curatage technique, sometimes simply called a DNC. Basically, the procedure works by dilating the cervix and removing parts of the lining of the uterus, including an embryo, by scraping or scooping with a sharp implement. This is considered a surgical abortion and was generally performed between 4 to 12 weeks pregnant. It's painful and requires the use of sharp surgical tools, which increase risk of injury and should really be done under at least mild sedation. The Janes did not have access to the kinds of sedation that would have made this procedure less painful. This was the most common form of first trimester abortion for a really long time. The rise of medication for abortion has led to the use of DNCs declining, though a similar but more advanced version, an abortion via vacuum aspiration, is also still popular. DNCs are also occasionally still used in the case of miscarriage if the body doesn't seem to be passing all of the dead tissue on its own, or after a live birth if the body isn't passing the placenta. The procedure itself has more functions than just terminating a pregnancy. For second trimester abortions, the Janes used the supercoil method, which caused women to miscarry. Invented by psychologist, not Dr. Harvey Carmen, it was not the best. Like it sounds, it was literally a large coil that was inserted into the uterus where it broke the amniotic sac and caused damage and irritation, forcing the body to miscarry the fetus in an attempt to maybe like, save itself, it kind of sounds like. They resulted in high rates of injury to the patient, and unfortunately, the very first trial of the supercoil method was on Bangladeshi rape victims, sponsored by the International Planned Parenthood Federation. It sounds all bad. I can't imagine that today we would think that rape survivors should be the first people to test a violent and invasive medical procedure performed by a strange man that they don't know, but what do I know? Nevertheless, many people had complications from the supercoil method, and it's no longer in use. However, the Janes had a good track record. An obstetrician working with the Jane Collective for follow-ups said that their success rate was comparable to many clinics legally operating in New York. It would later be confirmed by an outside party that Nick and the Janes were doing a great job. A study at the University of Illinois compared Jane's successful abortion outcomes to a licensed facility opened after Roe and found that Jane had had a higher rate of safety, success, and support. Altogether, they treated about 11,000 women in total, and only a few ever suffered complications after seeing the Janes. Most articles say that no one ever died from a procedure through the Jane Collective, though there's a confusing story about one woman about one woman who may have. The woman, quote, had wanted an abortion but had such a dangerous infection that she had been urged to check into a hospital immediately. Jane attempted to follow up her case, but it took several days to determine that she had died in the hospital, end quote. I can't tell if that means she had arrived with some kind of infection already apparent and they didn't perform an abortion, sending her to the hospital instead, or if she got an infection from an abortion performed by the Janes. I only found one account of this, so I'm not sure what the full truth is. My guess is that she probably tried to self-abort using a clothes hanger or something else long and pointy and sharp, but instead of aborting the embryo, she severely hurt herself and didn't receive treatment in time. But again, that's just a guess. Every other record I've seen says that no, that no woman ever died from a procedure performed by the Jane Collective. Now, on May 3rd, 1972, there was a raid. Two Catholic women had gone to the Chicago police saying that their sister-in-law was planning on having an abortion. They gave them an address and two detectives arrived at one of the apartments, the front. 
Galitz or Levy described the moment. It was one of those apartments with a long hallway. Everyone was in the back and there were a lot of kids that day, which made it fairly chaotic. The woman who had visited the apartment had just left when I heard a knock at the door. I thought she was coming back, that she had forgotten her scarf or whatever. So I walked back to the door. There were two homicide detectives. They were enormous, these two really tall men. I looked at them. I turned around. I walked in front of them into the living room and said to everyone, these are the police. You do not have to say anything. The police were angry about that and I was arrested. We were smart enough to know that you don't have to talk to the police and that policemen are not your friends. End quote. It's worth noting that it was specifically homicide detectives who were investigating because abortion was considered a homicide then. But the detectives clearly hadn't, like, signed up for this when they became homicide detectives. They'd signed up to catch murderers, and as Gallitzer Levy said, quote, They think of themselves as good guys, and they hated being there. This was not their kind of crime, so they were very ambivalent about it. The whole thing was kind of messy from the beginning because cops truly had no idea who they were dealing with. During the raid, many investigators kept asking, where is he, where is he? Clearly, they expected to find a male doctor and they had no idea the women were doing it themselves. Eventually, they just took everyone in the apartment downtown. Many of the Janes had also been doing work with the civil rights movement and had been educated in how to talk to cops without incriminating themselves. In the process of investigating, the cops kept asking the Janes how much they charged, and the Janes would say stuff like, well, how much did they say we charged? So the investigators would ask patients how much they paid, because in other raids, every patient was paying like $500, and so they thought they could use that like to establish a pattern and to, you know, and as evidence. But the, because the Janes were accepting whatever people could afford, patients could truthfully say they paid $10 or $50 or $100, which made it confusing for the investigators and very hard to build a case on. Eventually, seven of the Janes were arrested and put in paddy wagons to be driven to lockup. Everyone else was released. Gallup Levy remembered, quote, The drive in the paddy wagon was a riot. It was all women, and of course, everybody else who was arrested was a hooker, because that's all they arrested women for then. And one woman was giving hilarious stories, regaling us with stories of the street. End quote. Once downtown, they were charged with abortion and conspiracy to commit abortion, which carried sentences over 100 years. After being let out on bail, the arrested Janes came to be known as the Abortion Seven. Unfortunately, those seven were kind of shunned by the rest of the Jane Collective. Leadership really wanted to continue providing their services, and they thought that those seven would be being watched in an attempt to find the rest of the group, so they kept their distance. Apparently, this was not well communicated to those seven, though, because they seemed to still bear resentments about it in interviews conducted in, like, the last ten years. Nevertheless, the Seven hired Joanne Wolfson to defend them, and she pursued a strategy of delay. By this point, the Supreme Court had taken up Roe v. Wade, and she knew that if the court moved to legalize abortion, that would make it easier to have the charges dropped. So why try to deal with it before that moment, right? Sure enough, on January 22, 1973, the Supreme Court issued a 7-2 decision in favor of Jane Roe, now known as Norma McCorvey. The decision stated that women in the U.S. have a fundamental right to choose whether to have abortions without excessive government restriction, therefore striking down Texas's abortion ban as unconstitutional. The majority decision included the following statement. The right of privacy, whether it be founded in the 14th Amendment's concept of personal liberty and restrictions upon state action, as we feel it is, or as the district court determined in the 9th Amendment's reservations of rights to the people, is broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether or not to terminate her pregnancy. The detriment that the state would impose upon the pregnant woman by denying this choice altogether is apparent. Specific and direct harm, medically diagnosable even in the early pregnancy, may be involved. Maternity or additional offspring may force upon the woman a distressful life in future. Psychological harm may be imminent. 
mental and physical health may be taxed by childcare. There's also the distress for all concerned associated with the unwanted child. And there's the problem of bringing a child into a family already unable psychologically and otherwise to care for it. All these are the fact, all these are factors the woman in her responsible physician necessarily will consider in consultation. A state may properly assert important interest in safeguarding health, in maintaining medical standards, and protecting potential life. At some point in pregnancy, these respective interests become sufficiently compelling to sustain regulation of the factors that govern the abortion decision. The privacy right involved, therefore, cannot be said to be absolute. In fact, it is not clear to us that the claim asserted by Samamichi that one has an unlimited right to do with one's body as one pleases, bears a close relationship to the right of privacy previously articulated in the court's decisions. We therefore conclude that the right of personal privacy includes the abortion decision, but that this right is not unqualified and must be considered against important state interests and regulation." End quote. The legalization of abortion meant all the charges were dropped against the Jane Collective pretty much immediately. Technically, though, the women were now in the gray area of having been practicing medicine without a license. A persuasive lawyer probably could have perhaps argued that the abortions were illegal at the time, so they couldn't be properly considered medical procedures and therefore not subject to licensure. Fortunately, it never came to that. Chicago PD promised not to press charges for practicing without a license if the Janes didn't request the return of the medical instruments that had been taken during the raid. Since they had no intention of continuing the service now that there were legal clinics, this was a very easy thing to agree to. The Jane Collective disbanded at this point. I mentioned earlier that there was some tension after the arrest. Laura Kaplan stated in her book that the women were burned out on their mission and on each other by this point. They had an end of Jane party to celebrate Roe v. Wade and they went their separate ways. One was later employed in a women's health clinic, but the rest either settled into married life or went into other areas of activism. It's really worth noting that several members were critical of the Roe v. Wade decision with Laura Kaplan saying that the law was, quote, written emphatically in terms of physicians' rights, not women's rights. In her eyes, this law created a process in which men could be in charge of women's bodies. To me, it sounds like she's, intentionally or not, drawing a comparison between this and the 19th century move of male physicians to push midwives out of the process. Another Jane, Linnea Johnson, said all Roe v. Wade accomplished was to, quote, remand women back into the realm of male law, male custom, medical custody. Bad idea then as now, end quote. I think Kaplan and Johnson make excellent points. Like I pointed out earlier, for centuries, birth and abortion were the domain of women. It was thought about and handled primarily by the people who could get pregnant. And while others might have talked about it or had opinions, at the end of the day, abortion was a private decision. The way that the majority opinion of Roe was written leaves a lot to unpack, and people have been unpacking it and talking about it ever since. The vague phrasing, at some point in the pregnancy, leaves a ton of wiggle room for deciding when life begins and therefore when an abortion is acceptable. Saying that the right to privacy and therefore access to abortion, quote, must be considered against important state interests and regulation is a direct through line to the uninformed and frankly gross line we saw in the leaked draft rescinding Roe, which cited a domestic supply of infants for adoption being a reason to rescind Roe. That line, by the way, is in the Alito draft, but actually comes from a CDC report from 2002, which claimed that 1 million people had tried to adopt in the 1990s, but had been unable to because there weren't infants available for adoption in the US. This astounding lie can be easily disproven by looking at the number of teens that were aging out of the US foster care system without ever having been adopted between the years of, say, 2008 to 2018. That number, by the way, is 23,000 teens that age out of foster care every single year. 
how the CDC in the 90s missed an estimated 230,000 children without parents and said that there was, quote, no domestic supply of adoptable infants is a mystery to me, but I digress. Even before the Supreme Court news made me want to cover this episode, the Jane Collective was finally being given their due. Two separate films about the Jane Collective premiered at the 2022 Sundance Film Festival. One, The Janes, is a documentary directed by Tia Lesson and Emma Pildes. That one is coming out soon. It will premiere on HBO on June 8th. The other, Call Jane, is a historical drama starring Elizabeth Banks and Sigourney Weaver and was directed by Phyllis Nash. It's due out in October of 2022 and, oh, this casting, y'all, it's going to be so good. Though, frankly, I wouldn't be surprised if the U.S. saw a resurgence of some kind of law similar to the old Comstock laws striking down the right for people to spread information about abortion, meaning both Call Jane and this podcast will be canceled. Before I close out, I just want to like look at some numbers. Around 56 million abortions are performed around the world every year. Numbers decreased year after year through the 1980s and 1990s as people gained easier access to contraception and family planning and finally stabilized in the early 2000s. Abortion rates remain similar between countries that ban abortion and countries that allow it. What changes is whether those abortions are considered safe. Abortion bans don't stop abortions, they just stop safe ones. And while the Jane Collective did a remarkable job providing safe abortions complete with pre-service counseling and post-service care during a time when it was dangerous and illegal to do so, I'm featuring them on this podcast because they were the exception, not the rule. I hope you enjoyed the story of the Jane Collective. Thanks for listening to Unruly Figures. Thank you to everyone who has liked and subscribed to Unruly Figures. I'm told that this is where credits go, but Unruly Figures is researched, written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, all by myself. So if you are into supporting independent artists, please share this with at least one person you know. If you're feeling really generous, rate this show and leave a review for Unruly Figures on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find this work. If you want to subscribe, you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Unruly Figures. Come hang out. If you want to see photos related to today's episode, come find this episode's transcript on Substack. It'll be full of photos. While there, you can also subscribe for ad-free episodes and behind-the-scenes content. That's all going to be at unrulyfigures.substack.com. That's U-N-R-U-L-Y-F-I-G-U-R-E-S dot S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. Until next time, stay unruly. (music) Thank <music> you.